We are a resource for learners, including every member of the Livestrong Cancer Institute's on-track educational pipeline from middle school to residency. We are a growing collection of interviews, talks, and experiences that uncover the myths and the uncertainties of cancer and careers in cancer in order to empower and inspire generations of thinkers and leaders. This is Cancer Uncovered, an education and empowerment podcast by the Livestrong Cancer Institutes. Hello, thank you for listening to Cancer Uncovered. This is Kristen Wynn of the Livestrong Cancer Institutes reporting for duty. With a brand new season of Cancer Uncovered, we have a brand new segment. Each month, we will feature a short discussion with an expert on a different type of cancer before jumping into our episode's main story. This episode is first launching in September of 2021, and September is Blood Cancer Awareness Month. So Dr. Bill Matsui of the Livestrong Cancer Institutes sat down with me to talk blood cancer basics. My name is Bill Matsui. I am the uh, director of the Heme Malignancies Program at um, UT Health Austin and the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, and I'm a doctor who takes care of patients with blood cancers. So oftentimes I get the question of what what are blood cancers, and really there are two major types. One type are lymphomas, which grow in your lymph nodes. Those are a cancer of the immune system. And um, the second is uh, leukemias, and those are really a cancer that starts in your bone marrow, and it's part of the normal production of blood cells. So for each type, there are certain symptoms that people might have. So for example, with lymphomas, people might have swollen lymph nodes, that's a sign. Um, If they're pretty advanced, patients may start doing things like losing weight and have fevers and be tired all the time. With leukemias, oftentimes you either see very high blood counts or you see very low blood counts, but people will usually have the same sort of symptoms. There's no way to really screen for them except for getting your blood checked and getting um, evaluated by a physician like during a annual visit. There are really no known, there are very few um, causes that are known to exist for these diseases. There are curable ones and incurable ones. There's probably about 90 different kinds of blood cancers. And so one really great place to go is the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Um, They have information on all types of when someone gets diagnosed, and they also have a lot of great resources about who to maybe talk to and, um, you know, where are support groups and things like that. So these are rare diseases, but if you put them all together, they're pretty common. And so um, it's, it's not uncommon that you'll meet someone who's had or has a blood cancer. As Bill mentioned, for more information, you can visit the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society at lls.org. And now, I'll turn the program over to my esteemed LCI colleague, and more often than not, my voice of reason, Ginger Okoro. Well, good day and welcome to this month's podcast brought to you by the Livestrong Cancer Institutes at the University of Texas at Austin's Dell Medical School. Today, we're so fortunate to be profiling the specialty of oncofertility. We're joined today by advanced practice nurse, Sarah Felderhoff, an adolescent and young adult member, Animal Desai. Thank you for both taking the time out today to educate our learners and our listeners on oncofertility. Thanks for having us. 
Thank you. So, Sarah, I want to start with you. Can you tell us about yourself? What is your background, your experience? Absolutely. So my background, you know, I got my bachelor's in nursing and then I got my um, master's in nursing. So I'm currently a nurse practitioner. I have a background in primary care as well as women's health. And then more specifically to the oncology, I have a background in pediatric oncology. And what kind of led me to oncofertility is just while working with the pediatric oncology population, you know, I just, and also with patients who are post-chemo, post-treatment in, in their survivorship, I just saw a big need in our community for oncofertility. And so that's kind of what led me um, here to this position. So can you unpack oncofertility for us? And what is the difference between oncofertility and fertility preservation? So fertility preservation is kind of a broad term that we use, and it's, you know, it's any procedure or treatment that we do before a medical treatment that could possibly cause infertility. Just to kind of give some examples like radiation, chemotherapy, certain surgeries, fertility preservation isn't necessarily specific to cancer patients, as obviously there's other conditions that require treatments and procedures that can affect a patient's future fertility. Oncofertility specifically kind of refers to the field where we bridge the gap between oncology and reproductive endocrinology. And the purpose of it is to kind of maximize our um, the reproductive potential for cancer patients and survivors. So oncofertility is very specific to our oncology population. So when you say oncology population, does that mean it's a certain age group, certain demographics? So our goal is to open it up to anybody, any age, any demographic. I truly feel every patient should be offered oncofertility as they're going through cancer treatment and prior to cancer treatment. For our educational learners out there, I just wanted to talk about what led you here through your educational background. Was it STEM? Was it a mentor. Elaborate on that. Working with a pediatric um, oncology population, I would see patients come in that had already started chemo and just weren't offered fertility preservation. And there just wasn't a good substantial program in our area that was addressing these needs. And now as far as my educational background, we had talked about how I'm a nurse practitioner and I do have a background in oncology. And more specifically, starting this position, I did do a certification course and it is available for nurses or any medical professional who's interested. And it's a certification course that's offered by ASRM and it's a certification course in reproductive endocrinology and uh, infertility. The other thing I did was um, studied under Dr. Mack, who is our reproductive endocrinologist here at DHA, and basically did training with her on ultrasound, on treatment protocols. The other things that I think are, have been super helpful to my field is attending the oncofertility conferences. You learn the most innovative you know, practices, what people are doing at their facilities, how they're setting up their programs very helpful to talk to other people and you do a lot of educational sessions. The other thing that's really helpful is the Onco Fertility Consortium, a huge website with a ton of resources, but they also have several textbooks that they've released um, that um, are specifically about oncofertility. They have a pediatric one and then they also have an adult textbook. And I've, I've read those from you know cover to cover and I found those very helpful as well. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the practitioner to patient relationship and that discussion? And I'd even like to bring on Anmol and, and 
Can you tell me a little bit about the discussions that you had with her? Sure. So Emma, I can start and then let you chime in when you want to. So I ideally the start of the meeting, it's always ideal for me to see a patient before they start treatment. And Anmol can tell you this because once we start treatment, our options become a little bit more limited and specifically the chemotherapy um, that can cause some of the infertility issues in the future. So that's usually why I like to have this conversation before patients start treatment. So usually in the next day or two, we have a more detailed conversation. And that's where I really focus on the the oncofertility or the fertility preservation counseling. And I go into current options. I also see patients in survivorship. And what that is, patients that have completed treatment and are now on the other um, end of things. And a lot of these patients weren't able to do fertility preservation. I also see patients after treatment to help them start to think about fertility and future family planning. I met Enmol and we talked about things we can do after her treatment. And I'll let her kind of tell you a little bit more. So I was diagnosed July 2019. I had just started my first job out of grad school. I'd only been working for actually less than five months at that point. And so I, for me, it was an interesting time to, <laughs> let's to say the least, to have to go through figuring out what do I do about my job? How do I stay on my health insurance? I was lucky enough to be working with for the UT system at the Health Sciences Center in San Antonio. And so it's a really good <laughs> health insurance plan. And I had a really great social worker at Seton, Maine, where I got my chemotherapy. And so she is the one who was able to help me go through that, navigate that process and figure out what forms I need to get signed. After chemotherapy, I had about six to eight weeks before I had my stem cell transplant. And prior to my stem cell transplant for about three days, I had total body radiation, six rounds. And so in that in-between period, I had to figure out, okay, am I going to go back to work now that my three months of medical leave has gone up? And I was very lucky to have a supportive boss. And I, and I actually started back work on as part-time. Just last year, September, I transitioned to 80% full-time. And then just two days ago, I started at UT Dell. (laughs) And I transitioned to 100% full-time. And so, yeah. Well, tell yeah. us about that. You're just leaving us in the dark. Tell us about that. <laughs> so I'm working on the Gilead uh, Hepatitis C project that's in people experiencing homelessness and people who inject Ooh. drugs. I was working remotely way sooner than everyone else was with COVID. For me, it was important to be able to stay at home so that I could continue going to my regular checkups with oncologists, transplant team, all the other <laughs> doctors that there are. So it worked out well for me. I think that's been uh, an adventure that I've been going through figuring Mm -hmm. out how to balance uh, work life. And I think that's another thing that I've really, I think, come to appreciate is that work life balance and 
really trying to make sure I'm able to just keep working. Mm -hmm. And so like also maintaining an exercise routine and just some of these habits that I formed after treatment (laughs) and being able to maintain those so that I can maintain my overall, you know, physical and mental health. I think something that not everyone, you know, even knows about that there are these lab works that you need to look at the lab numbers to determine what my fertility is at. And that should happen a year after being on chemo for some patients versus just like right after I can see her and get started in the process. When I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, I had to start treatment right away. And so there was that time punch, but I had a very good oncologist who did bring up fertility in that initial diagnosis of pregnant, which was great. And I'm not sure if it's because I already have somewhat of a science background or I was just more focused on treatment. But even when he said that, I was kind of like, you know, let's go. And then even after my four rounds of chemotherapy, before I was scheduled to start radiation and my stem cell transplant, my doctors, my both my oncologist and my stem cell transplant doctor um, made a point to ask me about fertility again and readdress, you know, if I wanted to do an egg retrieval or go through any process. Retrospectively, that could have been a good point where I could have seen Sarah because I had time in between the treatment. And the reason I said no at that time was because it would have pushed my stem cell transplant off by a few weeks. I think maybe if I'd seen Sarah at that point, just had that conversation with her, what are my options? And, you know, being able to check my lab work and see what is that, you know, for me, I'm a very uh, data person. So I, you know, see what are the chances? What are the statistics? I'd be able to have a successful egg retrieval at that point, or if it would be worth it for me to just go to treatment and then come back to her afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like a very in-depth conversation. I mean, we're talking about, you know, something that's in the future, but not as far off perhaps as we may have thought. What type of support did you receive during that time? From what I understand, as a young person, you would have that discussion with your family as well. Is that correct? I'm in my mid-20s. So I was lucky enough to have both my parents with me at, like, that's not the initial diagnosis appointment, but the appointment right after that, where we, again, were talking about fertility. And so I had their support and I turned to them and said, well, there's adoption, there's surrogacy, there are other options. At that point, I think we were all kind of on the same page that my treatment was my priority at that time. So do you have support outside of your family? Who is your tribe? I I love that word tribe. (laughs) I do too, actually. (laughs) You know, you're sort of village. We have that village mentality in our department with our director, Gail Eckhart. And that's been how she wants to show her leadership Mm -hmm. is to have a village mentality because we, we all need one another, essentially. But also you have been through 
such an interesting journey. So you also have so much knowledge to offer others as well. So who's your support? Who's your resources? And then who are you supporting? That's a great question. So I was lucky enough to get treatment in Austin and I'm from Austin. So I had quite a bit of my high school and college friends already here. And so they've definitely been a great part of my support system aside from my family. And then I would definitely say that the AYA board has been a great support system for me as I transitioned, especially from treatment into survivorship, just to meet other people who've also gone through similar experiences. And, you know, there are points, uh, like things that I wouldn't have thought about when I was initially diagnosed or even when I initially went through chemo. And now some of those, um, like, side effects and, like, longer-term side effects and things like that come up. Chemo brain, short-term memory loss. Like, (laughs) things that it's, like, you read about, but you really don't think it's real until you really experience it. And then through AYA, I been able to have opportunities to do activities like this talk on a podcast talk at um a conference or do the live strong at school program talk to students Mm -hmm. about what it's like to be a patient and an advocate and so i think that's been a really great way for me to also just process what i've been through is i think it's taken me a lot longer (laughs) for it to like actually hit me like, oh, okay, this is what I've been doing. Like now I'm seeing where life is different than before. I mostly feel like myself, but some of the identity aspects are different. Like you said before, your treatment is your priority. Your life is your priority and getting you healthy and well um, was your priority at the time. When I met with Sarah, you know, she was able to tell me about different opportunities and different new research that they're working on as well that I had no idea about. And so I think even just thinking about it at that point, even if I still decided not to uh, go through with it, egg retrieval or anything at that point, just even having that information so that I could sit and think about it longer than I have now. But I don't think I regret my decision. I think it would have been nice to maybe have met with Sarah before my stem cell transplant okay. rather than after. And Sarah, that leads us into a interesting segue because when we had talked before, you alluded to the fact that that's sort of your mission. That seems to be your passion is to talk to individuals about oncofertility options at any age, in any stage. Um so tell us a little bit about the future of there's lots of different options specifically for females before chemotherapy there's the option to do either an egg um, or an embryo preservation we typically do embryo if, if they have a partner um, there's the option to do ovarian shielding which is for patients that are getting some type of abdominal or pelvic radiation we use special shields to that are placed over the ovaries during the radiation treatment there's an option to do ovarian transposition, which is if there if there is radiation to the pelvis, we can actually move the ovaries 
higher in the abdomen and away and out of that radiation field to minimize damage. There is an experimental option, what we call ovarian um, suppression. So we give hormone treatments and they're used to temporarily halt ovarian um, function with the thought that this could provide some ovarian protection during chemotherapy. One of the newest and most exciting things in our field is ovarian tissue freezing which as of pretty recently, it's no longer considered experimental. And part or all of the ovary is actually removed and frozen for future use. This gives the option to patients like animal who have acute leukemias, where when they're diagnosed, they're very sick and they need to be treated quickly. Mm -hmm. We'll try and do the ovarian tissue preservation during the port placement. So it's one time under anesthesia, which is obviously safer for the patient. So that's an extremely exciting option because we can offer at prepubital females of any age. So it's, it's very exciting. As far as options for males, um, there's sperm banking that can be used for future use. There's testicular sperm extraction if a patient is unable to do sperm banking. There's also radiation shielding for males as well. And then there is testicular tissue freezing as well. Although for males, that's still considered experimental right now. So there's still research being done in that area. So those are the options that we kind of lay out on the table prior to treatment. And I also like to talk to patients about the fact that if they decide to not do anything, there's so many, there's a lot of options after treatment as well. And I'm on a few of those. So there's adoption, egg donation and sperm donation in the future as well, embryo donation. And for someone like Anmal who didn't have to have a surgery where she wouldn't be able to carry a pregnancy or patients who can carry a pregnancy, that's a great option because they can still have the experience of being pregnant. Tell us a little bit about any of the misconceptions of uh, the process. Yeah, I think one of the biggest specific misconceptions about it is that it's drastically going to alter the time to treatment for patients. I think that's one of the biggest concerns with a patient's oncologist is that they're ready to go. Once their patient's sick, they want them to start getting treatment. And so they're often concerned about that delay in treatment. And that's where I have a conversation with the patient, patient's family, the physician. Obviously, sperm banking, that takes one to two days. It's pretty simple process. I talked about the ovarian and the testicular tissue preservation. That can be done at the same time as the port, so no delay in care there. And as far as the egg and embryo preservation, that takes about one to two weeks. And a lot of times, unless patients are very sick, that usually ends up being about two weeks. So that gives us enough time to do at least one stem cycle and an egg retrieval. Um, I think another misconception um, is that the age is a factor and that there are some patients that are either too old or too young. And I like to remind physicians or everyone that it's a case-by-case -case basis and I still want to have a conversation with the patient or with the family if it's someone that's young because there is options. And it, we don't know that patient's history. We don't know where they're at in their life. So I think it's important to remember that age shouldn't be a factor when we're having these conversations. I know that you discuss this with every patient um, that comes to the clinic, but does fertility concerns affect everyone that has cancer? No, it does not. A lot of women will return to, to normal fertility after treatment. It all depends on the treatment protocol that was used, what 
chemotherapies were used, was radiation used. And so that's something that we go into depth about. And I usually like to get, if it's, if I'm seeing the patient before, I like to get the plan from their oncologist, like what chemo protocol will they be on? And specifically, I like to know, are they going to get cyclophosphamide? Because that's one of the higher risk chemotherapies that can you know, lead to infertility. But there is categories of risk as far as treatments and risks to fertility. And a lot of the drugs are new and it's still unknown. I, I treat that as high risk because we don't know. And it's not something that we want to sit there and gamble with someone's fertility. And it might be good to have a conversation about doing an egg preservation just in case it had an effect on your fertility in the future. Now, often when it does affect their fertility, there's kind of several things that can happen. Often women will have a return to fertility after treatment, once they've completely finished treatment, and then they'll have a period or they'll have an early menopause, you know, often 10 years or so earlier than your average woman. There is also immediate menopause after completion of treatment. And then there's sometimes just an effect on the fertility, but the patient doesn't actually go into menopause. For males, it can be the same thing. You can see a return to fertility immediately. It can take some time or it doesn't return. Those are all things that we monitor after treatment as well, just to watch and see. And a lot of a lot of patients will have a year of no cycle, and then all of a sudden they'll get a cycle back. We'll do an ultrasound and an AMH, and everything looks fantastic. And I'm like, let's do an egg retrieval now, just in case we have this option in our back pocket if you want to use it. That's helpful because we want to understand, again, what the support levels are, what the process is. Can you tell me a little bit about the emotional, uh, financial, that kind of support as well Absolutely. for patients and families? Um, here at UTHA, UTHA, we have you know several social workers that are fantastic. If I have patients that need counseling support, Angela Luna is one of our oncology social workers. She's fantastic and she's a great connection. She helps connect patients with counseling services. There is great support groups out there. There's the AYA board. There's tons of other support groups out there for patients. There is financial assistance programs for patients who are interested in fertility preservation. Livestrong specifically has a great program and I help my patients apply for this. I really try and help each patient with navigating the financial piece of it. Some people do have insurance coverage for it and some people don't. Hopefully in the future we'll have coverage for everybody. That's my dream. I'd like to ask you, Animal, um, what are some of the misconceptions or ideologies your experience? What can you tell learners looking to perhaps be practitioners? How can you help them to have a better understanding of like a bedside manner, how to talk with patients, how to inform them, how to support them? I'd love for you to do that for us. Yeah, so I think one of the big things that I think that I would like to see is in addition to egg retrieval for oncologists to be able to also let patients know that there is also the tissue retrieval option that even though it's fairly new, but just so that we're aware that there's even this other option, right? Because 
Sarah said, that can be done when you're getting your port placed. And so it doesn't impact that treatment time. And I think that is, I would say that's for half the patients, a big thing is just impacting the treatment time. And then for the other half, I think it's that the expense of preservation. And so I think having those resources on hand when you're having that initial discussion about fertility so that patients understand like how uh, the support that's there, the financial support. And so even if I was told, hey, why don't you go see Sarah just so you can get some more information about it? Maybe I might have considered <laughs> that just as a, you know, an informational visit so that I could get that information. And that might've been next. Sarah, I'd like to ask you, piggybacking a little bit up on that answer that Animal provided to us, what can you tell our listeners who are interested in being an oncofertility advanced practice provider? What kind of support and conversations do they need to have with their uh, patients? I think if there's listeners who are interested in pursuing the oncofertility field or it's something that they feel passionate about, I think a good place to start would be to look into either those textbooks I was talking about or looking through the Onco Fertility Consortium website, just starting to touch on all the information that's out there. A really beneficial experience would be shadowing a reproductive endocrinologist that does see Onco patients. So you understand based on a, pa- a patient's diagnosis, what kind of chemotherapies they'll be getting. Having a solid oncology background is helpful as well. Each individual journey is about that patient and no patient is ever the same. Having an open mind and open ears and listening to the patient and guiding them, not making the decision for them is very important. Obviously, I don't want to sound cliche, but you don't want cancer to define you. So I would really love to hear maybe three words of inspiration or your outlook as you move forward through your journey. That's definitely (laughs) a thinker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like you said, actually, that was kind of the first thought I had in my head after my diagnosis was cancer is not going to become like who I Mm -hmm. am. But after the fact, and I think being a part of the AYA board, I would say, instead of saying cancer is me, I would say advocacy is the word say I the would use. For you. <laughs> yeah, because I think that has been something that I've become more passionate about and um, something that, you know, I hope to continue. And it kind of pairs well with who I am career-wise, which is epidemiologist. And then something that both treatment and COVID kind of put a halt to is travel. I mean, that's really just exploring and that aspect of meeting new people and trying new things and taking that kind of leap of faith in activities that maybe I wouldn't have before or, you know, now it's like, well, why not? (laughs) So I would say advocate, a traveler, adventurous. Yeah. (laughs) I like it. I like it. 
Sarah, how about you? It is a hard question. <laughs> I would say traveler as well to me because I've definitely missed that during COVID. I would say patient advocate for myself because my main goal is to advocate for my patients and help them in, in their, their journey. And then I would say, let's see. I would say that I would hope that I inspire other institutions that don't only have an oncofertility program to get one up and running. And I'd like to, and my hope in the future is to help other programs get up and running because I think it's a very important piece of every cancer program. And I think there's still not enough out there. Sarah, I'm so glad that you're part of the Calm Clinic team. And I'm glad that OnMall, that you would be so willing and open to share your story and that you're here at um, the Dell Medical School. We want to get individual stories out. We want not only listeners to hear, but we want to educate as well. And mm -hmm. I, know I just really appreciate your time and your candidness. And I, so, I agree. Well, we're, we're extremely, extremely grateful that you came yes. on. Your story is very inspirational and we appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for you know inviting me. I hope I'm able to help yeah. some of the physicians just get a little bit of a peek into the patient perspective. Thank you for joining us for this special episode on Oncofertility. We gained perspective from two special advocates as they navigate through the layers of cancer care while bridging gaps between oncology and reproductive endocrinology. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you continue to support our podcast of Cancer Uncovered. Be sure to subscribe, and also, if you have questions about this or other episodes or the Live Strong Cancer Institutes, please reach out to us via email, livestrongcancerinstitutes at dalemed.utexas.edu. Are you on social media? Please follow our chair and director, Dr. Gail Eckhart, on Twitter at S as in Sue, Gail, G-A-I-L, Eckhart, E-C-K-H-A-R-D-T. So tell me, think about it. What are your three, three words that describe you and your intentions? I think for me, it's always be learning and sometimes keep on going or keep on striving. And probably more recently, get more rest. This is Ginger Okoro. Until next month, thank you for your ongoing support of our podcast, Cancer Uncovered.